John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jew Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter, waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called to the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. Let's pray. Father, we, we as a church believe that every book of the Bible points to you and points more specifically to Jesus. And so, Lord, we, we want also as a church that every sermon, every message point directly to you. And as, as Serena so beautifully sang, thank you, Lord. We know, we know the work has been done, and you are all we need. And so, Father, I pray that, that this sermon, it does those things, that it points directly to you, that it leaves no doubt who you are and that you are who you claim to be. And so, Father, we just, we just feel blessed to be a community. I feel blessed and amazed to, um, I don't know, to be up here to, to try and, 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 and look at your beautiful word and help myself understand it better and in the process help others understand it better. So, Lord, I just pray that, that these words today, they be yours. And that at the end of this, that you be glorified in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so in about 1998, would you hand me that water bottle, hon? Um, our kids were eight, seven, and four. Thanks. And <clears throat> Linda and I, we thought time was getting away from us. We felt really old at that point in our lives. And we decided to do something special, something memorable. So we decided to go on a month-long camping trip, visiting national parks um, and a few friends and family across the West. We bought a used tent trailer. And if you don't know what a tent trailer is, uh, it basically looks like a box you pull behind your car. And at least ours was old, so it had a hand crank. Looked like something out of you know, World War I biplanes. You cranked it up. And the whole thing ratcheted up and made all kinds of noises. And then the sides popped out. And somehow you had essentially a tent with a sink that was 10 inches off the ground, which is all the insurance my wife and children needed to be comfortable. And so that trip, our travels on that month, took us to Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon. And then we came down the entire coast of California. 
And if you haven't done just that California part on your own, don't. Because it is the windiest, most nausea-inducing ride you've ever been on your life. However, it was a great trip. And since, as I'm looking out, many of you are about the same age Linda and I was on that trip, I want to encourage you to do something similar. And if you need help, we would want to help you with that. And it's important to remember what 1998 was like in a few areas. <clears throat> so for one thing, cell phones were things made by either Nokia or Motorola, right? There was no iPhone. There was not even an iPod, certainly not an iPad. Most people back then actually didn't have personal cell phones. And if you did, it only worked in the largest cities. And it, it didn't work at most of the places that we were driving. So internet also was a dial-up service. You know, you tapped into your phone line, which meant nobody could call in. So if you went online, that meant nobody could reach you, which can you imagine that now, right? We take it for granted. And internet dial-up was so slow, you have no idea, that we didn't have apps or programs that you could access. So to make up for that, you would buy a CD. You would go to the store and you would buy a CD that promised to deliver on some aspect of what you were doing. And some of these you put in your computer. Some of them were good and some of them, well, they weren't so good. And it was kind of a roll of the dice on what you got. <clears throat> so I bought a CD to prepare for this trip. And the CD was supposed to calculate the miles I wanted to drive, the distance between places, the speed I expected to drive, and give me an idea of how far you could reasonably travel in a day. Now we had three kids under eight, or eight and under I should say, and so in my pea brain I calculated that most of the driving should be around six hours or less to keep the kids from, you know, from mutiny. Um, and then I did have a couple of longer days built in, but they were built around the kids' sleep cycles. And so and I, you can't imagine how much time I spent at the computer, I mean days, navigating and working this out. And so I printed out the whole trip, and it, and it literally made a book. You know, so I had this whole book that was an itinerary, and we, we anticipated, um, well, we had a reservation at every other campground, which gave us some flexibility, but you can imagine some of these national parks, especially in July, were really popular, and so I had to do this six months in advance to even get a spot. So somewhere around the middle of the trip, we find ourselves in Montana, Wyoming. We're in Yellowstone National Park, which is a place you must go. Um, and we entered through the south entrance, which is uh, through Grand Teton National Park, which is another amazing place. We spent four days in Yellowstone, and we exited through the west entrance, or exit, I guess it would be. And we exited that way because we were on our way to Idaho, and up there in Idaho, it's very skinny, so we were going to drive basically right through Idaho, through Coeur d'Alene, and we had friends in Spokane, Washington, that we were going to visit. And so imagine here, I'm Clark Griswold. I've got my book of maps. Don't roll the window down because I can't lose a page. Um, everything's printed out. I have detailed directions. I studied them to make sure that we were on schedule and we're not late for our precious reservations. And when we left West Yellowstone, I had great confidence in my program because up to this point, it had been solid. And my program told me that the west side of Yellowstone and Spokane were six hours apart. And this is doable for my family and I. So we're driving, and 
we're in the middle of nowhere, and when you saw a sign, it typically said, next service, 98 miles. Next service, 151 miles. And so we're going through miles and miles of beautiful country. It's mountains, it's streams, it's everything that I hold dear, but there's very few towns and even less gas stations. So six hours of driving comes and goes, and six becomes seven, and soon enough, seven becomes eight, and Linda is starting to see the truth. She probably saw it long before, but she was being kind and didn't say it to me. But she's starting to see the truth, but I am still in full Clark mode. And I am not going off of my schedule because this program has been good. <clears throat> so the sun's starting to set. Things are getting a little dodgy. And now, even though it's cold outside, I'm starting to get a little, little concerned. We're in unfamiliar country. And Linda, she's thinking about feeding kids and getting a good night's sleep. And Brian's just thinking about getting to Spokane. And she says in her nicest voice, Bri, the next sign we see that says camping, that is where we will be spending the night. And so I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and that sign, when we finally saw it, and it, I, it took at least half an hour to 45 minutes to see it. So that beautiful sign is how we came to spend the night in beautiful Anaconda, Montana, which is the home to the world's largest standing piece of Freemasonry. Just ask me how I know. That's a story for another time. But there we are in the middle of nowhere. And so that's going to relate to something in a hot second here, because today's message is from the Gospel of John. And this was written somewhere between 80, 70, and 80, 100, near the end of John's life. And it's important to note that this is the same John who was marooned, imprisoned, thrown on the island of Patmos, and wrote the book of Revelation for us. Because the first half of that book is interesting. The first half, the first 11 chapters, basically tell the story of seven different miracles. But John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. And they're signs that Jesus publicly performed. And John is constantly pointing us to those signs as things that we can trust. And because so many people saw them, they were not done in secret, can be verified. So remember, John didn't really live in a world of signs. For us, we have a sign of, you know, ibuprofen, aspirin, naproxen. What a, we have a sign for everything. We have a sign to tell us banks, freeways, everything. John didn't have that. If you missed a sign in John's day, <clears throat> if you went the wrong way, there's a good chance you would die. The few signs that were out there were very important. And so John's world used mostly word of, word of mouth, what something that historians would call oral history, or they use letters, which is what the Gospel of John is. It's a letter, it's a book, it's a story, it's a way to exchange information, and John points us to signs. And Jesus' first sign in, in this, his first miracle, is turning water to wine. And so if, if I were to do an informal poll, I would ask you, like, when you think of Jesus' miracles... Right, Because at least, I don't know about you guys, but as a, as a person, I tend to force rank things. What's important and what's, what's most important what's least important? When you stack up Jesus' miracles, do you do that? And if you do, is turning water to wine like in the, one of the most important ones, or does it end up in one of the least important ones? And if it ends up in least important, I, I want to I challenge that. I want to argue that a little bit. 
So I had no idea last week what I was going to talk about today. <clears throat> and thankfully for my good friend Oscar, wherever he is, he preached on the seventh sign in the Gospel of John. And that final sign, as we know, if you were here last week, is on Lazarus. And that takes place at a funeral. And I thought it was interesting that the last sign takes place at a funeral, but the first sign takes place at a wedding. And I want to point something out as a side note, too, because when Pastor Chris took us through the book of Revelation last year, he did an amazing job in so many areas. And one of the things he really did that I enjoyed was he taught us a little bit about how numbers were viewed by the ancient Jewish people. And he taught us that seven is this sign of completeness, right? And so John gives us seven signs, probably indicating to us that his audience was largely made up of educated Christian Jews. And he's telling us, essentially John is saying, if you're skeptical, <clears throat> if you're on the fence, if your faith is lacking a little bit, these seven, these perfectly complete signs should convince you. But John further tells us there's so much more. So if we skip forward to John chapter 20, he tells us in verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's exposing to us right there, yeah, I'm giving you seven, and these... These seven, they're important, and they are signposts for you to look for, understand, and remember. But he's saying Jesus did so much more than that, but seven should be enough. <clears throat> so when Linda and I were camping, she wanted a sign. She didn't say, Brian, just pull over anywhere. She said, when you see a sign that says camping, that's where we will go. And she wanted that sign because, one, it pointed us to safety, when she saw it, she said, we're going there. And in a similar way, John is writing to his audience, and he's telling them, look at these signs. They lead us to safety. They actually lead us to life itself. John 5, in John 5, Jesus tells us why he gave these signs. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. He, Jesus, he did this to demonstrate that Jesus is of the father, that he and the father are one, and that even greater things are coming. And he's telling us that the old is going to become new. In the Middle East, in the first century, things like weddings were often used to gain or hold on to honor in the village in that they were held. They were a little bit like today. They were elaborate and expensive events that took a lot of planning and great expense. You can imagine guest lists were poured over, location, caterer, everything had to be perfect because back then for the host, his very reputation was at stake depending on how this uh, ceremony was played out. In a small village, it was typically a community event where everybody was invited. 
And they would often invite family and friends who would travel long distances to be there in attendance. And nowadays, a wedding might last, I don't know, four or five hours. Um, But then the wedding party and feast would often last seven days. And again, it's often about the bride and groom, but it's also about the honor that the host gets from throwing a proper party. So John 2 starts us off, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Is it just me, or does on the third day seem like an odd way to start that sentence? You see, if, if you were to go to Israel, even today, you'll likely see a lot of weddings performed on Tuesday, because that's the third day of the week. And the reason for that is, in the creation account in Genesis, God blessed the third day twice. If you look to Genesis uh, 1, verses 10 and verse 12, you'll notice something unique, and that's both of these blessings occur on Tuesday, which make Tuesday something the Jews looked at as doubly blessed. So this was an especially good day for a wedding because God saw that it was good twice. And the location, Cana of Galilee, means that Jesus and his entourage traveled to be there. Jesus was of Nazareth, right? And that includes his mom, Mary. And they were likely honored guests based on distance traveled and the number of people in their party. And because of this little tidbit, some people, some scholars think that Mary may have been related to the groom, and therefore when she turns to Jesus and says they don't have any wine, she may have feared that her own reputation could have been hurt as well. And so Mary, she steps in, she tells Jesus about this dire situation, and in context, it does make sense, because it's likely that Joseph, Mary's husband, is deceased. We don't really know this for sure. The Bible never tells us when Joseph disappears from the scene or why. But the last time we hear from Joseph is in Luke 2 when Jesus is only 12 years old. So what that means is that means Jesus is the firstborn and the man of the house. He's also about 30 years old. That's the age a typical Jewish man as a rabbi would start to take charge and start to have disciples. And so it makes sense to them as, or it makes sense that Mary and her family would travel. They would be honored guests. She would be worried about the events that happens. And when something untold, unexpected happens, they run out of wine. Mary turns to her boss, her son, and says, they've run out of wine. But what Jesus says in response is, is a little shocking but I think it also exposes potentially Mary's heart in this matter. Because Jesus responds with, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. And I know when I look at that at first glance, I say, whoa, if I talk to my mom like that, that'd be trouble. My dad's name is Herb, and he does not tolerate that. We called, my brother and I called him Herb the verb, the action word, because he would jump right into things. And so I, I want you to know, though, that that response, it actually makes sense if you break it down. So woman was a respectful greeting back then. It's not, 
not exactly warm and cuddly. You didn't typically use that term for your mom, but it wasn't as rude as it might sound now. And some scholars look at that and they think that what Jesus is doing is he's creating an intentional separation between himself and his mother to show her true love. <clears throat> Another way that we might understand that is if we, if we put it in different words and we said, what if Jesus asked Mary, Mom, what do you and I have in common and what makes us different? You see, because Jesus is turning his mother's attention not to him as her son, but to his mission as the son of God. And we might say that in this moment, Jesus, he's wearing two hats. Remember, he's fully man and fully God. Something that doesn't seem like it can live in the same space, but that does. And he's making sure that his mother sees which hat he's about to put on. He wants her to see this sign for what it is. He's saying to her, yes, I'm your son, mom, but more importantly, I'm also your Lord. D.A. Carson says this about Mary in this moment. He says, she, Mary, like every other person, must come to him, Jesus, as to the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. I know you guys know this, but there are people outside here who elevate Mary in a way that this verse says is not accurate. I think it's fair to say that Mary is one of the most honored women of all time. I mean, she was chosen to be the earthly mother to the God of the universe. But it's also, to, it's also fair to point out that she is a descendant of Adam, and she's a sinner just like you and me. And so this statement then that looks so harsh is actually Jesus loving on his mom. When Mary wanted Jesus to potentially save the host and maybe herself from dishonor, Jesus wants something bigger. He wants glory for his dad. And I think somewhere in that transition where Mary brings that to his attention and Jesus responds, I think Mary sees it. Because her next words she says to the head waiter, do whatever he tells you, his mother tells the servants. Now six stone waters had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he, Jesus, said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter, and they did. <clears throat> you see, Mary believes she believes, and she points to the others to also believe when she says, do whatever he tells you. You don't say that about somebody you doubt. You don't say that about somebody you think is, is not real or false or fake. You say that about somebody who you believe in. And so let's, let's do a moment's more detective work here because, well, I, honestly, I was trying to figure out my style and sometimes I feel like I'm a little more Bible study than I am sermon, and for that I apologize. But man, I love the details, and it's because most of my life I spent as a detective, and I spent looking for those little clues and putting them together and, and building a bigger story, and when I got it right, when I caught my suspect, that was a really good feeling. So when I go through this stuff like this and I start putting some of these clues together, I find it very exciting. And really... I'm, I'm hoping this speaks to a few of you, and if there's a few of you it doesn't speak to, I'm so sorry. I'm just trying to tell you what gets me excited, and this gospel stuff is killer good. 
So one of the clues that's dropped in there is we know that this party is nowhere near its end because the stone jars, they're used for washing. It tells us this is for purification of the Jews, right? And so we know the party's nowhere near, end, uh, near the end because they're empty. And so therefore the host and the servants have not yet taken preparations to end the party. And so when they run out of wine, the party's not over yet because he doesn't have these jars filled. So he's in this dilemma, right? His reputation's on the line. And, and get this, this is another fun fact I found. He actually opens himself up to lawsuit. So if you invited people to a feast back then and you ran out of food or drink, your guests could bring legal action against you. I'm telling you, ancient Jewish celebrations are no joke. These people took their parties seriously. And since the servants filled the jars to the brim, they told us a minute ago how big those jars were. The calculation is that would have been between 120 and 150 gallons of wine. It doesn't tell us how many people were at this party. That seems like a lot of wine to me. And then verse 9 points us to when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, right, parentheses, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He, the head waiter, called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people are drunk, the inferior, but you, you have kept the fine wine until now. When he says this, when the head waiter says, you have kept the fine wine until now, he may or may not realize it, but he's making Jesus' point that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is Jesus, and he is here. You know, I touched on it a moment ago. The jars were used as a Jewish cleansing ritual. <clears throat> Jesus, as a Jew, respected greatly the old covenant ways, but he was frustrated that they were used against people, making their lives harder instead of making their lives easier. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it? Well, here he is. He's fulfilling it right here in this moment. He's initiating what this fulfillment is going to be. You see, he's taking something old, the spiritual bareness of first century Judaism, represented by the water and things like animal sacrifice, and he's making it new and good. The wine, this will point to his sacrifice when at the Last Supper he says, whenever you drink of this, think of me. He's turning water to wine. So when I, I don't know about you guys, but when I take communion, depending on my week, different things go through my head. And I often think of Christ's sacrifice. But for me, it's important to remind myself that the Old Testament view of wine was a sign of joy and God's blessing. <clears throat> so Jesus' sacrifice should give us great joy and blessing. And God expects you to see the glory of Jesus in this sign. Taking the old, making it new, he expects you to respond likewise by believing in him. In, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
the old has passed away and see the new has come. When Jesus comes into our lives, he takes something old, us, something marred by sin, deserving of punishment, and he makes us, remakes us into something new, something washed by the blood sacrifice of the only one who is perfect, himself. You see, when I, when, I, when I was thinking about this wedding, the wedding host didn't earn this wine. The groom didn't earn this wine. He and his guests did nothing to deserve this. They actually planned poorly. And, and he got he and his guests potentially into trouble. But Jesus loved. And through his mercy and grace, he saved them from their shame, just like he stands ready, arms open wide to save us. What he's done, it's a gift. It's a gift beyond measure, and it's certainly one that they didn't and we don't deserve. Anthony Salvaggio, in his book, The Seven Signs, which, side note, it's great. I used a lot of it for this. Um, But his quote says, Jesus created wine from a symbol of Old Covenant Judaism ceremonial purification water, which ultimately failed to cleanse people from sin. By this act, Jesus was declaring that old covenant Judaism was ineffectual and about to crumble. And I think Jesus is also pointing us to a time forward when death will no longer hurt us and we will enjoy the party of all parties. God's prophets, they were sign readers and sign proclaimers. One of them, a guy named Isaiah, I feel like you know him, said this in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations, when he, was, when he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. In context there, Isaiah is talking about judgment of the wicked, but he's also pointing to salvation for the people of God. And he's talking about a party where there will be no more tears, no more disgrace, And one of the signs that that party has started is an abundance of fine wine. Luke 15 says, I tell you in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. It sounds like a party. And that's not the only place in Scripture it says that. There's multiple places where when somebody comes to Jesus, there's a party. They throw a party. And so if being with Jesus is like a party then why do I sometimes hear about becoming a Christian being a buzzkill? So many people view being a follower of Jesus as if it's some boring, drab existence. And can I point out that he turned water to wine, not the other way around? Right? He could have taken something good and turned it into something plain and boring. He could have taken water and turned it into Or he took water and turned it into wine for enjoyment. And it wasn't just any wine, it was really good wine. 
And he did it at a wedding in order to keep the party going. And that doesn't sound like a party pooper to me. That sounds like a party starter. And Jesus did this because his kingdom where he is, where his followers will be, is full of life and fun and happiness and joy. So I don't know about you guys, but you know what Danny had to say resonated with me a little bit. Is there an area in your life sometimes where you look at something and instead of wine, you're seeing water? Do we forget what Jesus has done for us? Do we somehow put that over there and think all the world's problems are in our, our hands? I know I'm guilty of that. I had a week, but I survived it. And it's through God's grace. And somehow he got me here. <clears throat> so I would want you to know that Jesus has a gift for you that starts here and now and ends in even a better place with him. Because Jesus shows people what the party is going to be like by giving us our dignity back. If you looked, if we're to imitate Christ, and if you looked at Christ's example, he routinely hung out with the outcast, people like prostitutes and lepers and tax collectors. He healed people, he fed them, he saved them from oppressive religious leaders. He's creating a party in an environment where we can enjoy ourselves. We just have to RSVP through him. And in John 2.11, it says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So remember, this is his first of seven given to us in John. In Jesus, he revealed his glory and the disciples believed. That's a powerful sign right there. I tried to find this quote. I couldn't find it. So if somebody knows, if I messed it up or somebody knows better, please tell me. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said something to the effect of that Jesus didn't do parlor tricks. And what, what he meant by that is that Jesus doesn't do miracles to impress us. That's not what this is about. His signs, as John calls them, his miracles as we call them now, this sign that we're talking about, water to wine, has a purpose. And that purpose is for you to see and make a decision. The first sign of water to wine was to display the glory of Christ and pronounce that the old ways have faded and the new is now here. You see, Jews had been looking for a Messiah and they were expecting that Messiah to rescue them from bondage. And they largely thought that he, the bondage that they suffered were from captors like Egyptians and Romans, but Christ comes and he demonstrates that their true captor, our true captor, is sin. And he came to set us free from that sin. As Paul says in Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So are you able to see it? None of us measure up. We can't. We only measure up through Jesus. If God is just, so follow a moment of logic here. If God is just and we're not, we deserve justice, right? 
But thankfully for Jesus, he changed that. He took our place. He took on all of our sin. And when we meet him, we're still just water, something old, something plain, something ineffective. But when we believe in him, notice there's a difference between meeting and believing. When we believe in him, he turns us into something new and exciting, like good fine wine. And he does this while we're still here on earth with us now because he wants us to keep the party going long enough for us all to meet and believe in the winemaker. Don't miss, I know you didn't, that he's the winemaker. He's the reason for the party. And if we come to him, we will enjoy what he's done for us. Scripture begins in Genesis with a wedding. And it ends in Revelation with a wedding. And it makes sense to me that Jesus would start his public ministry at a wedding because Jesus is the groom and he's coming for his bride, the church. And the wedding feast, remember back then it was seven days, is a long party. And it starts now when you meet him. And it reaches a climax when you believe in him. And that climax never lets up. So when we're in his presence, we need to know the winemaker. We need to drink deeply from his cup because he intends for us to be with him forever. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.